Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Well, I've had a haircut, Ed. I don't mm. know if you can tell solely through the, the timbre of my voice, but I feel, <laughs> as Sylvester sang, mighty real. And it's been a little while since you and I have uh, sat down in our respective chairs, uh, pan, ocean and had a chat because you, my friend, are now fully 100% vaccinated, are you not? Mm, yes, I have the spirit of Dolly Parton coursing through my veins, more than the rest of us do, just in general. Um, <laughs> uh, because, yes, I got the second I got the second Moderna shot um, the other week. Uh, I got it on a Friday. Uh, had a somewhat... I mean, like, I, it wasn't bad, like, in terms of side effects, you know, compared... Like, I, I feel like a lot of people get the um, impression that it's going to be like going like 12 rounds with Mike Tyson or something, but you Mm -hmm. know, it's really, I just kind of felt very fluey. You know, I had a headache, which I was able to tackle reasonably well with Tylenol. I had um, chills and kind of like hot flashes over the course of a day. And I, the the day afterwards, I was just like really, really tired from it. But other than that, you know, it just felt like, yeah, I've, I've, I've been sicker in my life. by uh some measure you know so it, it was just kind of very uh, slightly exhausting and you know i just had an excuse to lie on the sofa for a day but yes i i am now fully vaccinated this week i'm going to start going to the gym and going to the movie theaters again i'm very very excited uh to as i've joked in the past do two or three more things <laughs> regularly <laughs> That I have in uh, the last year or so, obviously not going to go crazy. It, it was it was a it was a massive relief to kind of get that over and done with, and it's nice as well because like other people on my team at work and people I know are getting theirs as well. So it's just kind of like there's a nice sense of like okay, everyone's kind of getting themselves to a, a position of some safety. Um, we can yeah start thinking about what happens next but just in and of itself knowing that I am you know safer than I was two weeks ago or safer than I was um six weeks ago when I uh got the first jab that's uh an immense relief I'm made up for you pal I'm so pleased thank you so we'll go on to the news for this week and this episode is sort of newsy in general because we're going to be talking about the Oscars and what the ceremony from a few weeks ago means for the Oscar more generally but uh, I just wanted to talk at the top of the show about uh, how I've been sad about a video game website for most of the week which is uh, a ridiculous sentence to say but no 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 less true this is this is the place for it Ed and as we were talking (laughs) offline I have absolutely no idea about this I've been completely out of the loop so please Start from the very beginning. Okay, so uh, GiantBomb.com is a website about video games that was started in 2008 uh, as the result of Jeff Gersman, who was a reviews editor at GameSpot, being fired from that website for writing a negative review of Kane and Lynch at the same time that the game was being advertised on the site and then refusing to take it down. So he was fired, and then a bunch of other editors from that site 
uh, left in the wake of that kind of in solidarity and to go and work for him and uh, Ryan Davis, who was another one of the uh, editors at GameSpot who left so they could found this this new website where they weren't going to be beholden to the whims of kind of corporate stuff and where they would be able to just kind of do what they wanted around coverage of video games. And the site's been around for 13 years at this point. It's it's very successful. The um, two podcasts that kind of come out of it, the Giant Bombcast and the Giant Beastcast, are still like two of the most popular podcasts in video games. And their videos are always like super fun and really interesting. And they're very thoughtful uh, and intelligent people. And uh, on Tuesday of this past week, uh, three of the editors, uh, Brad Shoemaker, Vinnie Caravella and Alex Navarro, all announced that they were leaving and uh, you know Brad and Vinny had been with the site since pretty much its inception and Alex joined a few years later and this suddenness of this um, because uh, in the past people have left the site you know it's been around for ages and people have come and gone uh, has you know been a, a cause for people being like oh you know that's sad but you know we're happy for you and what you're doing uh, next and all this sort of thing but the suddenness with which like basically half the staff of the site as it currently stands left uh took people by surprise and just kind of uh caused a huge outswelling of grief from the the fans of the website and the community that's grown up around it and also just people in the video games industry in general who have been you know fans of that site and involved with that site over the years and i still have like tremendous faith in in Jeff Gersman, who I think is a like a really brilliant writer and also just kind of visionary in terms of like what coverage of video games is, and I'm sure he'll be able to do something good with the site. But I can't help but feel incredibly kind of like sad that this team that have been together for so long and who have this like real close uh, friendship that was really evident in all the stuff they did together for so long uh, aren't going to be working together. And you know, like everyone, not everyone, but you know, like all the people who are aware of that site and the kind of the dynamics there have, have been talking about it as essentially like a band breaking up and it really does kind of feel that way for me it does feel like you know a band that have been around for a really long time and who have had like a you know not a huge but certainly a dedicated audience have called it quits is uh yeah it's just very sad to see and something so sudden as well like has there been mm-hmm. sort of like official statements or anything to that degree or has it just been like announcements and no further detail so they announced it live on tuesday they they kind of live stream the bombcast every tuesday and so like uh they announced it there and then they did a bunch of subsequent streams where the the three guys all got a chance to kind of say their goodbyes and to kind of like hang out and they have released kind of some statements online which basically are of the they're basically saying you know this is uh our this is our choice you know we've not been forced out or anything but you know we kind of feel like it's time to move on and that's complicated by a little bit by the fact that the website was sold about six months ago it previously was owned by cbs and then all of cbs's digital stuff including gamespot and cnet got sold to a company called red ventures so there's kind of like a sense like maybe this had something to do with it but also I get the feeling that the last year was very tough on whatever, you know, it was very tough on a lot of people, but I think it was especially tough for them because one of the things that was always great about Giant Bomb is, you know, they had these two studios, one in New York and one in 
San Francisco where they would do all of their stuff, where they would do all their streams from. And there was a great like in-studio atmosphere. And obviously they all had to be streaming from their own homes in that time. And that's, you know, obviously way more invasive even for, you know, a site that is built on letting you see into those people's lives. And I think the New York office doesn't, they don't have an office anymore because that was a CBS property and obviously they can't use it anymore. And they do still have an office in uh, San Francisco. So maybe there was just a sense of like, we don't know when you'll be able to get back to doing your regular work. You're going to be streamed from home for the foreseeable that maybe forced Alex and Vinny to look at it and think, man, I just don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to have to be sat in a chair in my own house every day and, you know, kind of like streaming, like maybe that just ended up taking a toll. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so far there's not been kind of like a uh, a detailed taxonomy of it, but, you know, it's been, for every, obviously for everyone, it's been a very destabilizing year, but certainly for those guys, like I could imagine it really wearing on them in a way that wouldn't have been the case if you know they had to be out of the office for like a month and then they got back in yeah absolutely and I know what you mean when you say it's like a band um splitting up and it doesn't necessarily have to be because of any animosity or creative differences like I remember the the deep woe that I felt when the toast disbanded yeah and it yeah. was like oh you know we're keeping it as an archive and I was like oh geez and I think the thing about the toast is that you look at kind of humorists and a lot of the landscape today and they're all influenced by the toast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that I think is also one of the things about giant bomb that is why it has this, such this huge footprint on the industry is like, they were huge innovators in, in podcasting just in general, but particularly obviously in games, podcasting, they were huge innovators in, streaming video like they would stream themselves playing games before twitch even existed like they built their own platform for it essentially and that's kind of what they've been building on and they were like especially innovative in the idea of like pushing personalities first like the byline was no longer just this is someone who writes for this website it was like this is someone that you know because you see them on screen you hear their voice and that that's a big part of why I think those three guys leaving was such a kind of a big thing for so many people, myself included. You know, mm. I can't be totally objective in this because, as I've mentioned, this made me very sad. Mm. Um, they have kind of had this huge impact on the industry and, and also, you know, just in terms of various people who have gone through there, like Austin Walker and Patrick Klepek, who are now at Vice Games, like they you know, took a lot of that spirit to there and to, to Waypoint and, you know, just various other people have kind of gone through that place over the years and gone on and, and spread that influence to you know wherever they have kind of ended up on on the one level you kind of think obviously this isn't the end as far as anyone knows like the, the site still exists and it's going to kind of keep going as long as they can keep it going but the influence that it's had those three guys had and all the amazing funny ridiculous stuff that they go they've done over the years obviously still exists online particularly you know on giantbomb.com mm. uh so like their legacy you know is obviously still there and is still going to kind of keep rolling on over the years it's just you know it's just sad thinking like oh man i don't get to find out what uh, Vinny and Alex have been up to on the bomb cast every week, you know. Oh, on the, yeah. sorry, on the beast cast. They're on the beast cast. Yeah, yeah, and also just like as a on a personal note, like their 
streams over the last year have been just like such a comfort to me over the course of the pandemic because when they all started working from home initially they were literally like streaming eight hours a day like they would take it in shifts from all the various people who were working on the site and they would just kind of like do it to kind of you know give people a little comfort and to kind of take their minds off how bad things were and also I think for themselves as kind of a coping mechanism just be like uh you know what do we do if we're stuck at home all day and um I really uh I really appreciated that I, I thought that was like just a real balm particularly during the early part of the year when I was like having to also shift to work from home and just thinking like what the fuck is going on there's that real kind of um it's interesting how we have more platforms and portals and opportunities for like emergency broadcasting and that it's not mm. necessarily and often to the detriment um solely sort of like information because you um talking about that experience that just took me right back to the beginning when Ellis James and John Robbins who had moved to Radio 5 um and did used to do a weekly show um ended up doing extra shows called the isolation tapes and mm-hmm. um i i like the pair of them they are they are good good boys and they particularly together i think they work really well together and they did a series called How Do You Cope for BBC Sound mm. as well, which I thought was remarkable um, and got people to talk in a way that was kind of frank and upfront and in no way exploitative and really comforting. So to have them during the isolation tapes and also in that kind of finding stuff that was still funny without desperately trying to make stuff funny or mm. do it with this kind of, so um jingoism of like keep calm and carry on it wasn't that it was like everything's very weird but we are still here and we're talking about how weird it is <laughs> and make sure that you don't drink too much and look after each other and i was like oh yeah this is really helpful <laughs> mm, yeah absolutely uh so yeah so just want to say good luck to brad <laughs> finney and alex with whatever they do next good luck to jeff and jan and jason and all the guys who are still at giant bomb and uh, i mean i wish nothing but the best for all of them they all seem like thoroughly decent dudes basically and uh yeah i look forward to whatever they do next so we'll go on to the main topic for this week which is the oscars the oscars uh of course happened about a week and a half ago at this point uh or two weeks ago uh, at this point and by all accounts something of a disaster <laughs> not necessarily in terms of the rewards although there were some certainly that um, raised some eyebrows, but the event itself, which was co-produced by Steven Soderbergh and took place partly at Union Station in LA and caused a whole load of problems for people who actually live in LA, you know, had this kind of feeling of a bunch of interesting choices that didn't necessarily add up to a good product and also it ended in a way which, uh, which was incredibly strange, but we'll, we'll talk about that uh more so uh, in a bit but i think overall there has been a lot of hand-wringing about the oscars the fact that the ratings were terrible that uh it didn't have a lot of this kind of like glamour like they didn't really know how you were meant to stage one of these things in a year where uh people didn't see a lot of movies or where you know you couldn't really do all of the glamour so it was 
a very weird event that I think uh, has a lot of people just kind of like questioning the very existence of the Oscars as a cultural body. So, um, yeah, so there's a lot there's a lot to discuss in terms of the Oscars and just how weird it was. Um, what was your kind of response to the to the to the results and to the general kind of tone of the event, Emily? Look, I love Steven Soderbergh. So I'm on board with whatever project he's got going on. I believe I spoke about him pretty extensively in our free pass episode mm-hmm. a while ago. Yeah. And I'm not entirely unconvinced that he didn't plan this because <laughs> he ha- is someone who has, I think, a very puckish relationship with mainstream Hollywood. Yeah. And of all the people who were available, I'm like, kudos, great, get Steve on it. But I can't help but think there's a little bit of a sort of, I think he oceaned 11 it. <laughs> and I think he's like, it's time for this to diet and we're going to go out in style and it will be by my hand this is my heist because I mean it was just in the way that the Oscars always is simultaneously bizarre and completely banal Mm. and it's such a weird combination of flavors isn't it because you're like oh something happened something happened but it feels like you already sort of missed it as it was happening and it still felt really fucking long and mm. look i i love a frock and i don't think that we should shy away from the fact that that fashion and film are interlinked when it comes to awards and how you know couture really depends on celebrity and this kind of dressing of certain culture so like you know the pol- the politics behind that and so i i love looking at the clothes i really do not just from a sort of aesthetic um, point of view I loved what Laura Dern was wearing I'm like mm. yes I haven't seen feathers on the on <laughs> on show since Bjork um and I thought she looked great and a lot of people like and you know it's the usual kind of misogyny that happens but I thought Andrew Day looked amazing I think she you know a, a lot of people are like if I wear gold I am going to dress as the statuette and maybe take one home and and that's great so yeah it just felt like for a year that could have been really like and I know this is a bit ironic to call it to to use this term but like a year that could be really rewarding not necessarily a kind of self-congratulatory uh self-congratulatory circle jerk of like we're finally recognizing people that aren't white anymore (laughs) and like but instead it just ended up being like a damp squib and I felt thoroughly flumped by it And I think, you know, in terms of the results, I mean, I wonder if the results would have been as shocking as they were if they hadn't changed the entire format of the show leading up to what they thought it would be. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. I think for a ceremony, for for um, an event that obviously is still, I think, in some ways recovering from the 2017 awards with uh, Moonlight and La La Land, that that whole mix-up. I think it was quite impressive that they managed to kind of come something that was kind of insane in its own way. Yes. And also kind of hard to believe. Because I, I remember when, I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but when that Oscars happened, Matt was travelling around South America and I texted him 
um, basically saying, man, what happened to the Oscars last night was crazy, right? And he was like, I've not had internet for five days. I don't know what's happened. And I got the <laughs> the distinct pleasure of getting to describe to him uh, everything that went wrong at <laughs> the 2017 Best Picture um, handing off. And this year kind of had the same feeling to me. Like I was just so... I was I was kind of like, I, you know, obviously there's many reasons to be like, oh man, I wish I was going into an office tomorrow so I could talk to people about this. But like, that was um, one of the things I was like, God, I would really want to talk to people about this because this is so, so bizarre that, you know, they, they completely restructure the show from the tradition of having Best Picture handed out last to having it handed out like the anti-penultimate reward and then thinking, and immediately as soon as that happened, everyone quigged, oh, well, they think that Chadwick Boseman has won Best Actor. And so they get to end on this big emotional moment where his widow will come up and give a speech and everyone will be able to go on a, on a high. And they're really banking on that happening. And and in their, you know, in their defense, that's not the worst bet in the world to take. Like yeah. he had he had won some awards in the lead up to it. But also it wasn't like, you know, when Heath Ledger won in 2009, where he had won pretty much every single award and you knew going into it, yeah, no one else is winning Best Supporting Actor. It's going to be Heath Ledger. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there was, there, you know, there was a bit of a spread. You know, it wasn't the kind of sure thing that you would want to risk the final moments of your kind of like nationally televised <laughs> awards ceremony on. It was very much a calculated risk on their part thinking... Uh, you know, he died very tragically young. He's kind of great in this movie. Surely he's going to win. Surely he's going to win. And then uh, he didn't win. And the guy who did win wasn't allowed to call in. So there was nothing they could do at the end. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix just to talk with Lisa, accept the award on Anthony Hopkins's behalf, and then the show ended. And it was just such a confluence of terrible things kind of like piling on top of each other that really did make for like you say just like this total damp squib and an ending where you're like oh okay guess that's how the oscars are done this year <laughs> guess guess everyone goes home now and yeah it was just so perplexing and i think it really did even if chadwick boseman had won or someone who was in the room had won i think it still would have felt anticlimactic because best picture has for so long been like the climax because it's the best film of the year like that's kind of what you have at the end you know that's why it's the centerpiece of it all and also that's usually when you get like a whole group of people up on stage together there's this sense of you know like you've handed out all the individual achievements to people and suddenly you get to celebrate the film as a whole i I feel i've always felt like there is metaphorically kind of a nice thing there for for acknowledging the fact that film is a collaborative medium and even if you recognize the individual things you know it takes a village to make a movie and get it all together in the end uh so that in and of itself I, i really feel like what as soon as they switched best picture to from last like they were setting themselves up for an ending that was probably not going to amount to very much and and also switching best director earlier was also kind of like a weirdly deflating thing particularly when you know Chloe Zhao was the odds-on favorite and I feel like there was just this kind of like weird sense of anticlimax to 
the second woman ever, the first like Chinese woman to win best picture, you know, like best director. Like it, it that there was just like so many choices in that way. You kind of think, ah, oh, you you're robbing yourselves of potentially great moments here in the way that you're kind of flipping things around. I completely agree with you, Ed. It hadn't really occurred to me that even if Chadwick Boseman had won, it's a weird finishing point because Mm -hmm. it kind of undoes the work of, like you were saying, you know, film as a collaborative medium, but also the idea that, you know, certain performances are worth more than others. And I was reading reading some stuff in terms of, you know, the, the likelihood of the posthumous Oscars are very, very slim. And, you know, generally, Oscars are given out on a scale between you're up and coming and this has made you or you're on your way out and thank you for all the fish. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of, I think, even though I haven't seen The Father and I'm really glad that Anthony Hopkins won and I think it's absolutely lovely to wake up in Wales and be like, you've won an Oscar, you've won it. And be like, oh, thank you, because he's just an absolute delight and um, Mm. I'm so glad that... I think I'm on Twitter and Instagram still for him, really, because he's just he's just so sweet and and manic and gives such lovely messages of support to anyone who is um, on their sobriety journey. Like what a what a top lad. And and the idea of like, you know, not being able to throw to rural Wales. <laughs> he was asleep. <laughs> he didn't think he was gonna get it. But you're right, like it's it's not the it's a strange note to end on and that's not to try and diminish Chadwick Boseman's you know the effect of of his loss Mm -hmm. yeah just a a weird move so it does feel like it it was like nothing is more important than this thing and then it's anticlimactic and yeah I just think I think it's just exposed all the cracks in the Oscars and I guess the idea is now like well where are the Oscars going but I'm like what 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 even is the point of them anymore like, mm. I, I think it's going to take a long time for the idea of an Oscar and the sheer kind of financial draw of an Oscar is going to take a long time to shake. But it's kind of weird because it really does sort of depend because I do think there are, you know, not all Oscars are alike because mm. you look at someone like Monique who won for Precious. Yeah. And have we seen her? in No. I I feel like um, Lupita Nyong'o is only just starting to get the roles she should have got immediately after getting her Oscar. So I think it's mm. still, you know, and how long will it take for that to change? And I think it's great that it does still have the reach that it has because, you know, even though Chloe Zhao and Nomadland are not as, not as progressive as people think, it's still amazing that, you know, Asian girls can look at Chloe Zhao and be like, I can win an Oscar. I still think represent. I'm, I'm always going to be someone who says representation matters, and it's it's just accurate to reflect those people. It shouldn't just be the um, the helm of kind of rich rich white guys. But I also wonder, Ed, you know, what is what were the point of the Oscars? And if it is just that kind of like prestige slash money the idea of kind of a critical and cultural apex as per the Academy members decide. And of course, there's a difference between each individual Academy member and the um, 
kind of managerial administrative board of the academy, which I think we've seen mm. recently in the UK as well with BAFTA and the allegations, yeah. um, yes, alleged <laughs> um, mm. of, uh, of Noel Clark and how BAFTA behaved around that, which was very poorly. And, but that is very different from BAFTA members, you know, like, and I think it's important to kind of understand what we mean when we say the academy and I say that to kind of bring around to the point of like didn't just Harvey Weinstein make the Oscars his own sort of hunting ground slash Mm. trophy cabinet quite literally you know and with him gone as he fucking should be I do think there's been it's interesting that there has been a shift and a change in terms of what is eligible for an Oscar and what the Oscars might be used for going forward. But I don't think there's been quite enough analysis of like, well, you know, what what is behind an Oscar campaign? You know, because it seems mm. like now you've got Weinstein and his heavy hitting and his abuse out of the way, there might actually be breathing room. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, he's the only one like reading everything about Scott Rudin as well. You know, no no surprise but you can still be shocked because these are shocking things Mm. and again you know a lot of people saying like well the assistant deserved everything and it's like well of course it does but the oscars isn't necessarily about who deserves what and i don't think hollywood's ever going to be that ready to award something that exposes for what the majority of it is quite so uh bluntly Mm. yeah it is there's there's kind of like lots of concentric circles of meaning when you're kind of like talking about the academy, because like mm-hmm. it's, it's it's kind of like a synecdoche that covers a lot of different things. I think on one level, I view like okay, the Oscars kind of deserves to exist because the money that's generated from the event is so important for the academy's work in film preservation, and you know, like um, one of the things they highlighted this year is they've got this cool museum that they're opening soon, which is going to be a film and you know, basically a film and cinema museum in Los Angeles. That's going to be like a really cool resource and like all the stuff they do in there in terms of the history of film as a medium, I think is very valuable, uh, you know, and, 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 and always has been and, and will continue to be as, you know, individual studios maybe seem less interested in their back catalogs and in terms of, viewing film preservation as something worthwhile and noble in and of itself as opposed to a way to keep milking money out of ip that you happen to own which uh, is what some of them seem to be going towards which is uh, a terrible shame but then you also have like you know the, the oscars there is something very gauche about them you know not to go or george c scott about it you know and to kind of be furious at the notion of uh pitting artists against each other but there is something that's kind of like very degrading about it in a certain way like the whole notion of having to campaign campaign for these sort of things uh which also just makes hopkins winning even funny <laughs> because, yeah, yeah. yeah obviously he did i'm sure he did the work and you know he'd sign on a bunch of zoom calls and talk to people over it but you know the day before uh the, the the day of the Oscars, you know, like his campaigning seemed to amount to him filming a video of him struggling to, uh, not struggling because he was so emotional, trying to 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 read a Dylan Thomas poem and talk about his dad, which was very sweet and very beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and other than that, you know, it was just him being delightful in his house because, uh, you know, he's an old man; he can't really be going out and risking exposure to mm-hmm. coronavirus. And 
I think that that in and of itself, this this Oscars season, because the the notion of campaigning of going all to the to all these other events was diminished considerably. Um, there was less of that sense of people having to do the rounds, and maybe it pointed out the hollowness of that stuff in a major way. And and a, you know, I think that kind of plays into the general sense of these Oscars of you know like these movies sort of maybe not existing because people weren't really out there talking about them all the time. On Twitter, obviously, people were. People are arguing about yeah. Nomad Land incessantly. But for I think for the general public, um, most of these movies didn't seem entirely real yeah. because uh, the, camp- the Oscar campaign season just didn't exist anymore. And also because a lot of them couldn't see it. Like, not everyone's going to... Uh, gonna have access to a cinema that's showing these movies. Some of them are, go- uh, you know, not gonna live in a place where it's safe to see them, or they're not gonna think, oh, uh, you know, I'm not gonna shell out twenty dollars to watch a movie in my own home, mm. which is a perfectly reasonable thing to not want to do. Or they don't have Netflix and they don't want to watch. So you know, they can't watch Marines by Bottom or or, or whatever. So, uh, so yeah. So I think that plays into it a lot as well. I think that. Um, there's as I said, there's been a lot of hand wringing about how the 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 viewership this year was half of last year, and last year I think was a record low. So obviously, this year's uh, ceremony was also was was very poorly watched. But it's hard not to look at that and think, you know, if the question is, is this a sign of you know cinema's imminent demise and its complete sidelining in culture, or is it just the fact that no one could go see movies this year, and so there was less of an incentive for people to actually tune in. Um, it's probably more the latter than the former, although the former should not be discounted as kind of like an, an ongoing crisis. Yeah, I agree with you, and I think next year will be the real tell, won't it, mm-hmm. as to like how yeah. the ceremony will be, because no one was saying this about the Emmys. I think it's just, yeah. you know, it's the idea and, and the place that the Oscars hold in culture, and like you were saying, those concentric circles of meaning. And... I mean, part of me hopes that I wouldn't miss them if they mm-hmm. went. And it would be amazing to have something like, you know, having a really healthy ecosystem of different awards again, because it's not to say that other awards aren't important and great and, you know, reflect different things. Because mm. I don't think, you know, everyone's known for a long time that the Oscars doesn't necessarily mean a gold standard. It just means favourite which is very Mm. different to something like Independent Spirit Awards, for example. And, like, I think that I'm really not as fussed about the BAFTAs anymore as I used to be, whereas I'm much more interested in the Biffers because it seems Mm. like, you know, a smaller team. And I think I'm just really into my little kind of... In in the way that I am with the haircut that I have and the place that I live and, and the food that I eat, I am very much a sort of, you know, your bespoke curated nightmare of uh, mm-hmm. if I move into your neighborhood gentrification I, I, I je suis <laughs> um j'arrive <laughs> you know but to have something that is, is a bit more connected and I mean go, this is going back a decade um but when I worked for a film company we were you know small but successful and uh on on the indie circuit um when they went to the Biffers it just sounded like they had the absolute best time Whereas mm. the BAFTAs was a bit more of a kind of a bit more sprawling, and again that kind of weird formalism to it that no one could really quite puncture. 
apart from may she rest in power helen mccrory um mm. and things like that but it just became sort of like more awkward whereas at the, at the biffers like i think the year that they went and they came back with tales chris o'dowd was hosting and uh, they were sponsored by Moet and Shondon and he said it is Moet, it is Moet, less Swiss it's not Moe, like you're, <laughs> you're all heathens, I'm pronouncing it right and it felt like a genuinely sort of like, you know a co-conspiratorial sort of thing, so basically I'd even if the Oscars survive I'd like it to come right down I'd like it to be clipped right back um, because they've proven that they can do it on a much smaller scale, I'm not sure who's really got like you know what the rights cost anymore and and who's screening it but it can't be much you know look at something like eurovision you know that's not got the same kind of build up over over the year although it has a little bit because you know there's the kind of the selection in each in each country but it's Mm. not like it's the only like you never hear about those bands pretty much ever again they're sort of eurovision specific and like that's dandy everyone has a lovely time and i sort of wonder whether I just don't want the Oscars to become the showcase for um, Disney because <laughs> it's literally yeah. just going to be like um, a Disney conference before long. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think as as well, one of the things about the Oscars as they currently stand and, and one of the things that I think has tarnished the BAFTAs in their relation to the Oscar over the last sort of 10 years or so is I feel like, the BAFTAs used to be a lot more idiosyncratic in their choices. And now they are just seen as like one of the stepping stones on the way to the Oscar. And and, and people always complain rightly about the fact that often you will see movies nominated for BAFTAs and win BAFTAs that weren't open in the UK for months. And it's just kind of like, this doesn't seem bright. <laughs> like you can't award people, you can't award Nomadland uh, awards when it hasn't even like debuted in the UK, at least in America, you know, for the Oscars, it has to have played in uh, LA for two weeks before it can be nominated. Like, you know, at least some normal people can have gone to have watched it instead of just industry types getting their, their screener discs or their Vimeo links, you know. And I feel like that is the, the, the gravitational pull that the Oscars have over award season is understandable because it's the name that everyone knows. Like most people, certainly in America, like no one knows what the Biffers are, but you know, also like people wouldn't know what the Independent Spirit Awards are, you know, generally. So obviously they have a certain cultural weight because they're the ones that people know about. They're the ones that, you know, even laymans who don't really follow film that closely will know that the Oscars are important and and they will, if they hear a movie has, has won an Oscar, they'll be more likely to check it out. And we, you saw that even this year where um all the movies that won uh major awards saw like a pretty big boost in rentals the day afterwards uh with the exception of uh judas and the black messiah but mainly because that's uh only in theaters now i think you know it was outside of the month of it being on hbo so like there weren't really that many opportunities for people to actually go and watch it but so clearly the Oscar still has weight. It still means something to people and will still make people think, oh, this is a movie that is worth paying attention to. But the way in which it just distorts the entirety of the film landscape around it is not new, but it kind of feels like it has become inescapable even for major bodies that, and that you know, 10, 15 years ago were not being kind of driven by it like the BAFTAs which Mm -hmm. I feel 
used to be a lot less kind of like stepping stone to the Oscar than they are now. Before we go, what were there any kind of like results that you were particularly happy about, even if they may not have been surprising? Like I was as as a fan of of his going back to Skins and Psychoville, it was incredibly incredibly nice to see Daniel Kaluuya win an Oscar and to give such like a, a funny, charming, odd speech. Yeah, it was an absolute delight. Like I think he was being truly real, you mm-hmm. know, and, yeah. and being himself. And that was a relief. I guess I think because I haven't seen it yet, but I'm really excited to um, dig into it. I was really glad to see another round one international feature mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And and that was pretty fun. Obviously, Sound of Metal um, getting, yeah. you know, that would have been a real, if it hadn't got best sound, that would have <laughs> been just a, a crime. <laughs> yeah. I was happy to see it win editing as well. That, that was kind of a nice surprise. For sure. So I'm, I'm glad that it got, it got something, but I don't know. And uh, yeah, just flumped Ed. Just really flumped. <laughs> but yeah, great, great for Daniel Kaluuya. It's, it's kind of interesting that it's a sort of both actors are British winners, but I'm also mm. tired. Uh, it's probably not my place to be tired of it, but I, because it's not, you know, in terms of the discourse about British actors playing uh, African-American figures mm-hmm. in history. And I'm like, oh, the thing is, is that we do have, we have in terms of schools and training and theatres, I I think often that just brings across a certain gravitas that some casting directors respond to. I'm not going to say mm. that it's correct, but I just think the discourse is a little bit, I don't know, it, it just feels, and of course, you know, why should I even try and comment about this? It's really not my place. I am the one of the most achingly whitest people who exists, but... <laughs> I I just look at it and I'm like, is this what we're, is this the hill that you're trying to die on? Like, I, I don't know. I think it's in terms of like solidarity, it feels a little bit churlish to me. But then mm. again, as I say, what do I know? I went to school with girls called Araminta. I really don't have a, <laughs> I really don't have a place in this. My view on that subject, and again, extremely white, <laughs> cannot stress that enough. Um, if anyone was in any doubt by listening to our <laughs> podcast, Ed, and didn't have eyes on us. <laughs> my my view on that is has always been the reason why so many black British actors are going to the US and playing African-American figures is because we do not provide them with work <laughs> in the UK. Oh, There 100%. are not... There are not good roles for black actors in the UK, by and large. Um, like, I feel like Steve McQueen with um, Small Axe provided like a 500% increase in all roles for black actors in the UK over those five movies. Uh, without him, like, it would just continue to be this dire straits where they will get kind of like small roles. There won't be that many roles that really provide them with great opportunities. So... They have to go to the US because that's where the roles are. And so, like, that to me is always feels like punishing people who are suffering from a, a, a broader societal problem. Mm. Like, you should, 
you should if only there were better more plentiful roles for black actors in the uk that you know they could make a living from and you know get you know acclaim and reward from then you know there would be less instances of this happening um but yeah also i feel it's it's just unfair as well in that respect to just kind of denigrate the the good work that those actors do when they do go over to the U, to the us absolutely and it's not it's not their fault <laughs> like no. it is it is again the system and it's difficult because obviously emotionally and in terms of our cognitive bias, it's much easier to blame the person that has that role without thinking mm. you are you are all hard done by by a system that hits you against each other. It's divide and conquer to me. And so it makes yeah. me sad instead of saying like not putting forward that awareness instead of like essentially just blaming someone else. It makes it makes me sad. Mm. Absolutely. So we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes of Shot vs. Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? You know what? I have to say it it's not a new recommendation, but um, talking about kind of um, anniversary screenings, uh, you're talking about Scott Pilgrim. Um, it's also uh, just over 10 years since Bridesmaids was released. Mm. And I ended up re-watching that. And you know what? It is too long. <laughs> <laughs> but it is still an incredibly yeah. pleasant watch and Kristen Wiig is brilliant because I also watched um so I guess I'm recommending a Kristen Wiig double bill here uh Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar which mm. is just gloriously bonkers and I laughed out loud in a way that I hadn't for a long time and it's really nice to see a comedy that is genuinely just flat out silly and has genuine relationships but isn't heavy at all and just lives in a universe of its own and has an almost like austin powers like logic to it um so yeah it's it's got to be going uh, full-on wig fest with bridesmaids <laughs> and barb and star go to vista del mar great uh i still need to check that out i will endeavour to do so because yeah that seems like it'd be my sort of thing oh it's a real tit flapper <laughs> i'm going to recommend a documentary that i watched on the criterion channel the other day is there until the end of the month called nobody's business directed by alan berliner uh, who's a documentary filmmaker who uh, traffics primarily in um film essays and uh, i found it to be very entertaining uh, alan berliner talks to his uh recalcitrant cantankerous father about their family history um alan berliner is very interested in it he wants to explore the history of his family you know who are uh, polish and russian jews who came over to the u.s in the uh, late 1800s his father has no interest in that every time he tries to get him to pay attention to it or to say oh don't you find this interesting his dad pretty much just screams at him no and it is a really entertaining sort of hour-long conversation uh, over stock footage interspersed with like conversations with other members of the family kind of like talking about the the weird coldness and uh incuriosity of of Berliner's father that I found to be just like really really entertaining you know it's just this this long um combative conversation that they have which uh, I found to be like really invigorating as essentially you're just watching these two people who fundamentally see the world in an entirely different way trying to find some common ground and failing more often than not um but it's still very revealing uh 
in its own way. So that's Nobody's Business, which is on uh, the Criterion channel uh, until the end of this month, and I think is uh, reasonably easy to find uh, elsewhere. So uh, check it out. It's a lot of fun. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player Fan, all the usual places, raters, reviewers, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. 